If you brought your copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to open with me to the book of James. We are studying through this book, and we find ourselves this morning in James chapter 2, verse 14. After James teaching on the subject of partiality, that of favoritism, and exposing that as missing the mark, he is now going to have a Q&A, a question and answer session on the topic of genuine saving faith and works and the relationship between the two. And the premise to everything James does in this section is to show that what we do, our actions, our works, our lives, uh, is that which obviously is to be a reflection and will be a reflection of our heart. Out of the heart flows the issues of one's life. That what we do says something very plainly about our faith claim, whether it's, he's going to say, a dead faith or not. This section in the book of James is by far one of the most significant theological issues addressed in this letter, and then it goes right to the heart of what genuine saving faith is, or what we might say what it does, what it looks like in the life of one truly justified. James is going to say in chapter 2, verse 24, and we're going to get to this passage actually next week, he's going to say, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James, you remember Camel Knee James uh, from a life of constant prayer, Camel Knee James? the half-brother of Jesus, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, the James who was martyred for his faith in Jesus, he is going to question the efficacy of every single churchgoer's claim to having genuine saving faith in Jesus. Again, the half-brother of Jesus, Camelney James, a man of prayer, He's going to question the efficacy of our faith if our faith claim is unaccompanied by deeds, by good works. That is in keeping with genuine repentance. And he does this because he knows something. He knows that faith, genuine saving faith, is genuinely evidenced by a changed heart from which the issues of life actually flow, and that when the heart has changed, God has brought new affections for himself, new affections for God. He has, he has set us free from a law of sin and death, and he is enabling us to walk by the Spirit and to thus produce a life that looks like a life that he is at work in us, that wills and works for his good pleasure. This James. In this section of James's letter, he's going to insist that the necessary mark of authentic Christianity is the fruit of good works in the life of one who claims to know Christ. James affirms unequivocally that genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is accompanied by 
good works. Now, a lot of people like to say that James' teaching is in stark contrast to the Apostle Paul, who seems to be the apostle of free grace, and he indeed is because grace is indeed free. We're not talking about the root of justification. James, we're going to see, is not talking about the fruit of justification. He's going to say that whenever you get the fruit, the free fruit of justification from the heart and the heart changes, it's the fruit. It's the actual fruit from that root. It's not the other way around. And so when I speak with those who make highlight of the Apostle Paul, I oftentimes equate James chapter 2 with Romans chapter 2. Because, you know, 2 and 2, James, Paul, James 2, Romans 2. So I'm not, I don't have time to work through Romans 2, 1 through 16 this morning. If you're interested in hearing that sermon, you can find that one online at the Jinx website or on our YouTube page. But I want to read this. I'm just going to read this. And as I read, I'm just going to make some little potential highlights along the way to bring your attention to the things that Paul is saying that's, in essence, exactly what James will be saying. Romans 2, James 2. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, what's this word? Practice the same things. In other words, your life is doing the same things against those that you want to bring judgment against. You're doing the same thing. You're practicing the same thing. And we know, verse 2, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who what? Practice such things. The life. The life that's practicing things that are against the ways of God bring about the judgment of God on those lives. But you suppose this, O oh man, verse 3, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do, you're living the same way yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God. Why? Why would you wrongly conclude that you who are doing the same thing and living the same way as those individuals are going to escape the judgment, but you're bringing God's judgment down upon their lives? Do you think, verse 4, lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And so repentance must be that which enables a person to practice different things so as not to be judged by God. But, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, because you're doing the same things, your life is the same as those sinners, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who? Verse 6. Who will render to each person according to his deeds. This is the Apostle Paul. The Gospel of Grace, Apostle of Paul. And it is grace, and it's all free, and it's apart from works, lest any man boast. Apostle Paul. But God's going to render to each person according to his deeds. We saw last week, James says that we need to be those who are prepared to be judged according to what? The law of liberty. And we equated the law of liberty to the law of love, which was 
the fulfillment of the law, which was love your neighbor, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We saw Paul specifically say in Romans 13 last week that in fulfilling loving your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the whole law. God saving us and justifying us freely does not mean that we no longer need to live according to the law. Should sin increase that grace may abound? Paul says, no, of course not. That's ridiculous thinking. You would never have that thought. So verse 7, to those who by perseverance in what? Doing good. In doing good, the life. Seek for glory and honor and immortality, what? What's the outcome? He says eternal life. Well, I thought eternal life was because I prayed a prayer and asked Jesus into my heart and I walked an aisle and got baptized. And maybe that's when you did truly get saved. It wasn't for me, but maybe it was truly for you. But Paul is saying that those who by perseverance in the life, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, the life, wrath, and, in, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress, verse 9, for every soul of man who does evil. Depart from me, I never knew you. Practice, those of you who practice lawlessness, Jesus said. But they were claiming to know him. Lord, Lord, we did X, Y, and Z, and all this in your name. I do not know you. The life God will render to each person according to his fruit, his deeds, his life, will, will reveal the true root in the heart. Did God truly, freely justify you from the heart and take away the heart of stone and give you truly a heart of flesh? Your life bears that out. That's what James is going to be saying, and that's what Paul is also indicating. Distress for every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, the life, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, and notice this, verse 11, there is no what? Partiality with God. What was James just dealing with last week? Partiality, favoritism. God does not judge by the face. God's electing and choosing you has nothing to do with what you did, how you looked, the clothes you wore or not. God chooses you based on his mercy. He said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So therefore, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. There's no partiality with God. You can't do something to make yourself more favorable in the sight of God. Paul and James know this. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. See also James 1, 20 through 22. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, verse 15, notice, in that they show through the life, in that they show through their life, in that they show the work of the law, the law of liberty. Where is it written? In their hearts. The true root of justification is demonstrated in their heart, which then makes its way out in the life. Heart first, the free gift of salvation. It works its way out naturally in the life. Jesus says a good tree, 
A good tree that has been redeemed by God bears good fruit. And Christians oftentimes want to say, but don't Christians sin? Well, yes, they do sin. Grapes bear, grapes don't come from thistles or thorn bushes. They come from grapevines. But have you ever seen a grapevine? Is every grape on the vine the perfect grape? Some of them look a little shriveled up, right? Some of them look a little withered and brownish. And some of them look a little eaten off of because of some rodent that came up. And sometimes the believer's fruit may look a little bit like that gnarly-looking grape that's hanging on the vine, but they're still in the vine. Jesus is the vine, John 15. He's the life source. He's the root. We're producing fruit. In that they show the work of the law written in their heart, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel. See, this is, accord- this is all in accordance with his gospel, the gospel of grace. God will judge the secrets of men, the life, through Christ Jesus. I guess you might say you can run, but you can't hide. So you might as well just come clean with it now and repent and trust in Christ by faith. Amen? just seems to make it simple. Um, that way. So Paul and James preaching the same gospel. According to Paul's gospel, God will judge the secrets of men, preaching the same gospel of grace, and that a person's works will validate the authenticity of their faith claim. Now, James 2.14, question one and question two. Question one first, look at verse 14. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? What use is that? That's his question. What use is it, brothers and sisters? What's the use if someone says he has faith but has no works? Is there any use to that claim? What would you say? Just yourself. Answer that In your own mind, what use is it? Not is it genuine, not is there some value to it, but what use is it if you claim to have a genuine saving faith, but you have no works in your life? James already said in chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So in thinking about his question here a little bit after that in 2.14, what use is it, brethren, if someone claims to have faith but has no works, it seems that James' clearly implied answer is that it's of no use. What use could that actually have? There's no value to that. It would be actually worthless. So here we clearly see what James thinks about unapplied religion, an an unapplied walk of faith, a claim to faith in Christ, but it doesn't impact the life. And so he follows up in 14 with the second question. After saying it's useless there to just claim it and not do it, he says at the very end of verse 14, then can that faith that kind of faith that has no works, can that faith save him? And this is how we know in 2.14 that he's talking about a saving faith. Uh, There are many who like to say that James here um, isn't talking about a saving faith, or they try to 
come up with some other rendition of what James is doing with his use of the term sozo, save. But clearly he's asking if there's a person who claims to have faith but they don't have works. We've already seen what he thinks of unapplied religion, an unapplied relationship with Christ. It's worthless. So can a worthless faith, a faith that has no use to it, can that faith actually save a person? That's the question, it seems, that James is wanting those brothers and sisters, the brethren to whom he's writing there in the church that's scattered abroad, he's wanting them to consider it, which makes me think that James, in writing to the church, is wanting to make certain that those who go to church have done some serious thinking about this topic. This isn't just something for those outside the church. James is wanting to bring this inside the church, and he's saying to the brothers and sisters, similarly to the way Peter does in 1 Peter, examine yourselves and make certain, all the more certain of God's choosing and calling you, brothers and sisters. His assumption seems to not be that everybody within the doors of the church, since I'm writing to brothers and sisters, every single one of them must have genuine faith. James seems to not be making that implication by writing the way he has written. Which means that the thrust and the um, import, the power of which James is speaking here to these brothers and sisters in that culture and in that church, since that was codified and canonized, is something we need to be thinking deeply about on a personal level as well. Not the person next to us this way and not the person next to us this way, but the man in the mirror, as James talked about in one, chapter 1, of not being the person who looks into the, 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 the mirror, the, which is the, the mirror of God's word, and walking away and forgetting what kind of person he was, James 1, through 24. We need to be those who look into the mirror of God's word and see that there must be life change that's in keeping with repentance to have an assurance of one's salvation. It's not just a matter of the lips. As Paul showed in Romans 2, James is showing very clearly in James 2, it's a matter of the life. And we're going to see next week, he says, you see that a person is justified not by faith alone, but by works. We'll deal with that, that sentence and that topic uh, next week. But it's this question, you answer this. Can that faith save him? If it's useless... There's no use to, claiming, to, to claim to have faith if you don't have works. If you have a useless faith, can that faith save him? James seems to be clearly implying no. Now, if you're finding it somewhat difficult to, to answer that question, or you're, you're feeling some of that tension that rises up within your heart in answering this question that James has laid out here, it's probably because you've grown up under... Um, a, a cultural gospel that has rend itself towards an easy believism. It seems to the, that easy believism has become a default, default gospel within the modern Christian church today. I mean, have you ever noticed how every single person that dies, they're going to see their beloved Uncle Eddie again in heaven with Jesus and Grandma and Grandpa and Uncle Fred? Have you ever, I mean, have you noticed that? I mean, like everybody right? I mean, every person that dies, whether they ever attended a local church, had any fruit in keeping with repentance or not, they at some point attended a church in the good United States of America, and they're in, right? I mean, come on. I mean, that is a default gospel within our culture 
It is. It's just not the gospel according to Jesus, or according to the Apostle Paul, or according to James, or according to Peter. But it has become a socially normalized gospel in our culture today. John MacArthur said, Today's Christianity is in a state of disarray and decay, and the condition is deteriorating year by year. The truth of God's word has been watered down and compromised to reach a common denominator that will appeal to and accommodate the largest number of participants, megachurches. The result is a hybrid Christianity which is essentially man-centered, materialistic, and worldly, and shamefully dishonoring to the Lord Jesus Christ because all it requires is a confirmation from the lip and not one from the life. Paul doesn't do that. James doesn't do that. Peter doesn't do that. Jesus himself does not do that. So more from MacArthur. He says, The call to Calvary must be recognized for what it is. What did Jesus say the Great Commission was? Go make disciples. It's a call to discipleship under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them, there's a teaching mechanism here, and teaching them to observe or to obey, Jesus says, all that I've commanded. So making a disciple is what Jesus has sent his believers out to do. Make disciples, share the gospel, they get converted, he puts a new heart within them, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't leave them, send them to glory, bring them back up. And then teach them, instruct them according to the Word of God on how to live a life of a true disciple. That's what the Great Commission says. It's a call to discipleship under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. To observe, obey all I've commanded. To respond to that call is to become a believer, a disciple, committed to the ways of Jesus. And while this is the clear teaching of the scriptures, it's not the gospel of choice in the Christian culture in which we are living today. I made mention of, this is, I don't know, maybe with, within the past year, I was preaching a sermon and um, was talking about my, my beautiful alma mater of Dallas Theological Seminary. And how this gospel of easy believism found its, its source, its root, its father there within the hallowed halls of Dallas Seminary under a professor, Dr. Zane Hodges. And uh, thankfully, um, and it took great, it spread, it spread like a wildfire because back in that day, and it's still today, it's one of the foremost theological seminaries in the land, and so... Anything that comes out from some of these large seminaries takes root very quickly within churches. And so that teaching of just all you have to do is say one time, I believe. That's it. I believe in Jesus. And you're eternally secure forever, ever, ever, ever. It doesn't matter anything you do. As a matter of fact, I quoted a very lengthy quote on that, on that Sunday out of one of Zane Hodge's books where he was talking about one of his friends and some of you who are here perhaps remember that. He was talking about one of his close friends who was a preacher, and they preached and traveled, they preached together. And this friend ended up renouncing Jesus and denouncing him as Lord and having nothing to do with Christ. And Zane was left to say, 
But even though he now hates Jesus and repudiates the gospel, he's still going to heaven. He's just going to go there unwittingly. But once he gets there, he'll be okay with it. I mean, that's how extreme this easy believism will go. And if you follow it to its end conclusion, that's where it takes you. And that looks nothing like the gospel of grace that we see in the scriptures. Nothing. And it's a tragedy. And we still see some of the remnants of that even in the church culture today. Because everybody's Uncle Eddie, when they die, I've got an Uncle Eddie, so I just use him. I love him affectionately. And I do believe he's in heaven. However, he was my crazy Uncle Eddie, and I loved him. But everybody does believe when their Uncle Eddie dies that they're going to heaven. It's a default gospel for sure. James is saying to these believers, you need to make certain of God's choosing and calling you. Can that kind of faith save you? You claim to have faith. You don't have any demonstration of the life that God changed anything within your heart whatsoever, nothing. And you're going to claim that when you die, you're going to see Uncle Eddie? You sure about that? Well, Pastor Ben, there is one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter, I think it's 6, somewhere in there. And it says, you're saved as though through fire. All your deeds that were evil get burned up, but you get saved as though through fire. What about that verse? I'm like, man, if you, if you want to cling to that one with everything you got, I mean, yes, once saved, always saved, without question. But that individual's life, though saved, because, and only God knows this, right? Only God knows this. He just gives us revelation that gives us a visual image of what it looks like, of what genuine salvation and genuine repentance looks like in the life of the believer. Believers can sin, and some believers can sin so much. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, in the passage dealing with the Lord's table, that God even put some of those believers to death because their life is so heinous, but they were genuinely believers. So I just don't want to enter, I don't want my eyes to close for the last time and I'm grasping onto a hope and a wish that maybe I'm one of those. How about you? Is, it, is, is that where you want to be kind of hanging your hat? That's not the peg I'm hanging my hat on. Those who are sons of God, Paul says in Romans 8, are led by the Spirit of God. And when you get saved, you get a new master, a new heart, new desires come, so forth, and so on. This is why the correct answer to James' question is so important in your life today. And in every century of the church, in every culture in which the gospel has been preached, because it's a matter of true saving faith, it's that which gives a person a, a, a true assurance of their salvation because again, unfortunately, not everyone who dies is going to heaven and going to see Jesus. And, we've got, and we have grown very uncomfortably saying so. Well, James is going to also help us by giving us an illustration in answering this question to demonstrate that his answer is a resound no. In verse 15 and 16, he says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food. And one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. Here's another one of those what use is that kind of questions right here. What use is that? It's and the obvious answer at the end of this is that it's of no use, right? It does the brother or sister who's without clothing and in need of daily food 
it does them absolutely no good. It's of no use to say, be in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And you have that within your ability to give them what's necessary for their body or for their, in their clothing, but you don't do that. That's useless. It does them no good. James is saying, in essence, no, that kind of faith, can that kind of faith save him? And by way of illustration... He's saying, no, that that is a useless faith. What use is it? It's of no use. And whenever you get to the pearly gates, claiming to have faith like that will be of no use. It was a spiritual miscalculation, as we pointed out two weeks ago from James himself. So James has left us, in essence, with one conclusion He's kind of put the cookies, if you will, on the bottom shelf just to make certain that there's no confusion at all. So in verse 17, he just kind of a well-driven nail into the coffin. He says, just in case anybody was left somehow confused with what he has written, he says, even so faith, if it has no works, which is why he's been talking about the last three verses, that faith is dead. I've told you twice it's useless. Now I'm telling you it's dead being by itself. And so asking the question, what does this mean? Being by itself, what does this mean? Well, clearly in the context, being by itself is this. Faith by itself has no works. So a faith being by itself, apart from works, he says, without question, is dead. And so, again, is that the... Is that the uh, the rung on which you want to hang your spiritual well-being on a little peg that's a dead faith peg. I'm betting my life, my soul, and my eternity on a dead faith. Can a dead faith save a person? <laughs> no. No. Dead faith does not save Faith without works is dead. Therefore, if you just claim to have faith and it's by itself, being by itself, you're clinging to something that will not save you. You're clinging to a dead faith. You truly believe that Jesus was the Son of God who came from heaven and died upon a cross, whose blood was shed for the free forgiveness of sins. And you maybe even walked an aisle and said a prayer and you repeated a prayer after a pastor and they baptized you the following week and sent you back out into the, into the, uh, into the pews the following service. And and said, you know, very good, and, and then go get discipled, however that may have looked in your life. However, as a, as a result of that moment and that time in your life, and you go forward and you look at your life, is your life one that's a demonstration of faith being at work, that, of God being at work in your life and producing in you that which you would not have produced had he left you unsaved? We were singing this song here, this fountain full of blood poured out for us, you know, being cleansed. I mean, imagine being dipped in this fountain of blood and being pulled out from the fountain of blood and being cleansed and then saying, hallelujah, fountain full of. Now I can go back to living exactly the same way I was, doing the same sins, living my old life, and I've got heaven because I did that. It's, that would be dead. It's, it's non-efficacious. And James is making this very pointed, and, and, it's, and it's very uncomfortable. Especially 
in our culture. And I'm assuming it probably was somewhat uncomfortable in their culture as well. We see the Apostle Paul dealing with um, this issue throughout his epistles with that statement that I made earlier, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound. There were those who were into antinomianism. They, they believed that, that you could claim to have Jesus, you could have Jesus, but you could also um, live however you wanted to live, that the life mattered not. What you did it was a very Gnostic-type gospel. Paul dealt with that. James is hammering this one clearly on the head. And again, this is personally, it's for you. That's why you've gathered this Lord's Day. James wrote to a church. This letter is to the church, and he's not assuming that every single person in the church building this morning is genuinely saved. He's asking you, can that faith save you? Do you have works with your faith? We have to make it personally so that we can personally do what Paul said and excuse me, what James said in James 1.22. We need to be those who are proving ourselves to be doers of the word. And we oftentimes think, well, pastor, that's going to put me on a performance treadmill. Like you're, you're telling me I got to go run and do all this stuff to prove something. And this is so important and vitally important that you understand this. You are not proving yourselves a doer of the word in order to gain anything. It will gain you nothing. It will not gain you or earn you favor with God. It will not earn you a right standing with God by doing this. James is saying that for those who are claiming to truly be saved, and you look into the word of God... You need to, and when you look into the mirror, where's this mirror? One who looks intently at the perfect law of the law of liberty, where's, there's a mirror in here, some natural face in a mirror. And the word of God is this mirror into which we look, and we look intently at the perfect law of liberty. We need to make certain that we are the ones who are abiding by it, by God's word. And thus we are proving, just through the natural course of living our lives, that guess what? God did something in me. I'm not over here running to earn anything. I'm over here serving and loving my fellow man and loving my neighbor as myself because God changed my heart from being a selfish person who only loved on self all the time to where now I'm looking outside of myself and now I'm able to freely serve and love others and thus prove myself to be a doer of God's word. I'm not one who's just merely a hearer who has done this. Deluded, that's where we got ourselves to the word a spiritual miscalculation. That was a mathematic term. So to, to again claim that and to not live it would be a serious miscalculation. Jesus, we saw last week too, says you will know them by their fruits. All people bear fruit. Jesus said that. There will be those, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, we may say the right thing, not everyone who does this will enter the kingdom of heaven. But, notice this, Jesus says, he or she who does, here's the doing of the life, does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter Jesus is saying, it's not just the lips, it's the life. But the lips and the life will, will match. But if all you have is the lips and no life, he's saying, you're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? And we do all these beautiful things. But he says right here, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The life. Your life bears you out. So again, Jesus, James, Paul, all affirming Faith without works 
is a dead, non-saving faith. Matthew Henry says regarding these verses, he says, We are too apt to rest in a bare profession of faith and to think this will save us. It is a cheap and easy religion to say we believe the articles of the Christian faith, but it is a great delusion to imagine that this is enough to bring us to heaven. Those who argue thus wrong God and put a cheat upon their souls, a mock faith is as hateful as mock charity, and both show a heart dead to all real godliness. Paul says in Ephesians, well, the re repetition here of it's a dead faith. I'm taking, I'm, I'm, whoa, what, what happened to my slides? I lost my slides. Okay. Something happened to my slides. I was going to show you Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. And that's a very familiar passage, right? For by grace we've been saved, how? Through what? Faith. Not as a result of? Lest any man boast. But, verse 10, we are God's poema. That's a beautiful phrase. We are his workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen? Amen? So if you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, you would assume that when you get saved by Christ Jesus, you would naturally have good works. This is essentially what James, Jesus, Paul, Peter it's what the scriptures say. Now, I found a joke that I thought was really funny that Matt would really appreciate, being that he loves the Texas A&M Aggies the way that he does. Nobody should know who did that. Oh, we got another one right here. Yeah, the Daniels right here. Boy, they are Texas A&M Aggies. And I got them two right up here on the second row. So this must have been ordained by God, right? <laughs> did you hear about the Texas Aggie who during World War II <clears throat> volunteered to be a kamikaze pilot? He flew 22 missions. Uh, okay, so, I mean, kamikaze pilots are supposed to fly one mission. They had one mission, and that's to fly out there, shoot off all their bombs, drop all their ammunition on, the, and then crash right into the boat. So they're supposed to fly one mission. And it seems that sometimes Christians are oftentimes like that. Aggie kamikaze pilot, so off mission, just so off mission and not really understanding that when you got sent out, he told you to do one thing, and we've turned it into some other mission that looked like 22 other things along the way, and we just need to get back to the main thing being the main thing, Amen. And so within the church of Jesus Christ gathered, we need to recognize that faith without works is dead. It's a non-saving faith. God wants to use your life on mission. Don't miss the mission for which he sent you. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. That's the only mission I see that Jesus left us with. That has a lot of expressions. But there's one mission. Amen? Let's be those who have faith in works. And next week, we get to hear from James' critics. Are there critics to this? Oh, you better believe there's critics. I've been told straight to my face that I have a, 
that I'm a heretic and that I have a false gospel because I teach James this way. James has critics, I've got critics, and anybody who teaches that faith without works is dead has critics. And we're going to hear from some of those critics next week as they were codified in Scripture, and then James deals with them very easily. That's next week. Let's pray.